Welcome to the Wandering Bard Podcast. Hi, thanks for joining me on the episode today. When I first started this podcast, I did a little research and the general consensus seems to be from the community that it takes about 10 episodes for you to kind of figure it out in terms of formatting and the sound issues, finding your groove and all that kind of stuff. And I'm really hoping with this being my 11th episode that I've worked out all the, all the major issues and I'm going to really put out a great episode. I'm really excited about the episode today. The story is amazing. I've talked about it a little bit on a previous episode. It's about this guy named Kayla McLeod who built this road, which sounds so simple, but the story, it's amazing. There are parts of it where I wouldn't even believe it if I hadn't read or seen the sources for it. It's one of those kind of like a a John Henry-esque type of tale where this one person just beats these overwhelming odds. And so I'm really kind of, I'm putting it out along with the new year because it definitely got me really motivated for my goals, and I'm hoping it will do the same for you. A couple brief notes before I get started. I just want to take a moment to offer some clarity about what I intended this podcast to be. And, and basically, uh, you know, they always say, make the podcast that you would want to hear. And so I'm a traditional folk musician, and I, I love the music and the story and the history behind it. When I can't be playing music, I definitely like learning about it. And so I was always curious about you know, some of the, the history behind some of the, the tunes and the songs. And so when I was driving to work, I kind of felt like that was just empty time, that I could be making some kind of progress, whether I couldn't be practicing, but I could be learning about it a little bit. And so I always envisioned a stage with a stool, and there's a spotlight, and a musician just walks up to the stool, and he gives a little story about a piece of music, and then he plays the piece of music. And so this podcast is intended to kind of be a little bit deeper than what that story would be that the musician tells before playing the piece of music. It's not really so much even intended to be a history podcast, so to speak. I mean, some of my previous episodes, like The Banshee and King of the Fairies, are definitely not rooted in history. So I'm doing my best to to properly give the historical aspects their due. And I'm going to do a better job of providing the sources for where I get this information. So if you have any doubts about anything that I'm saying on the podcast, you can go to my website and you can find out where am I getting this information from. So like with the last episode, I had some questions about the the accuracy of some of the things I was saying. Like I'm not a historian. Typically what happens is I'll, I'll find a tune and or I'll hear a little anecdote of a tune like, oh, this has a little cool story to go with it. And then I'll start digging around. And then as I dig, I start collecting the information about the tunes or the piece of music, the song, whatever it may be, and I put it all in a, in a file, then I start start sifting through it. A lot of times, I don't know anything about these tunes, and then I, I hear somebody at a session says, oh yeah, there's this story about this guy who wrote this song, and it, and it goes like this, and I say, oh, that's cool, and I make a note. Then I go back, and I start digging around, and I find a little bit about the guy, a little bit, a bit about the song, or whatever it may be. So I'm not trying to give a all-encompassing overview of every historical aspect as it pertains to these tunes. Now, it seems, interestingly enough, that that's kind of like what the podcast has been attracting. I thought it might be people just getting into traditional or folk music or had an interest in it that wanted to learn a little bit more about it, maybe a a passing interest in history as well. But what it seems I'm drawing, uh, the crowd seems to be people who are deeply interested in historical elements. So given that, I'm going to try and do a little bit more of the history stuff and take my role as a historian, so to speak, a little bit more seriously. So anyway, that being said, my primary source for the episode today was a book by Roger Hutchinson called Calum's Road. Basically what I did is I read the book and as I went through it, I dog-eared the pages that had like interesting facts on it. And eventually what happened was I found I was like dog-earing every single page. I've got the book in my hand right now. I'm looking at all the pages that I've marked with interesting notes. And so basically what I did, I ended up just reading the book twice because 
virtually every single page was dog-eared. The story is amazing. The story serves as a contemporary eyewitness testimony of almost a mythological proportion of what a human being can accomplish. You know, we hear the term last stand used often, but rarely do we get to see a last stand take place. But this is exactly what this story was. And it's like a living transition from fact to legend. Again, if I was out at a pub or uh, wherever and someone told me this story that, that they did what this guy did, I, I, I don't think I would believe them. I would, I would probably just write them off as, as a crazy person. And it all centers around the Hebrides, which are these islands around Scotland, They're these tiny little islands, and this man whose name was Caleb MacLeod. And the story kind of starts long before Caleb MacLeod comes into existence. The issues have been around long before he is born. And so let me just set the scene. These, these islands, these Hebrides islands, they're, they're very sparsely populated. Some of them only have a, a one or two hundred people. There's one of the islands at the time. It was only known to have one person living on it who was like a sheep herder. And you have the Inner Hebrides and the Outer Hebrides. And there, there are several hundred islands. And this particular one that this story takes place on, it's called Rasse. And it's about 12 miles long, and it's about 2 to 3 miles wide. And by all accounts, they are absolutely beautiful, stunning pieces of earth. But they are by no means a place that anyone would want to necessarily make home. So if I could phrase that a different way, I would say no one would go to these islands looking for a place to live stumble upon one of them and say, oh yeah, this looks like a great place to live. The people who lived there, they loved their homes. Um, that actually factors into the story pretty significantly. But they were apparently fairly inhospitable. There was not a lot of arable land. They were kind of like Martian landscapes almost, where a huge proportion of the land was not able to grow any crops. It was very rocky, and there was no fields. There was just like a little patch here where you could grow a couple tomatoes, and then it was stone everywhere, and then there was a little patch over here where you could grow something else, and it was just like that all over the island. So in 1773, the population of the island was about 600 people, and there was about maybe 160 cattle, and the description that I read was that the island was basically just pavement. And so, like, like I said, this made it very difficult for the people there to live. And eventually they started leaving the island. So by 1890, there was only about 430 people there. And these people didn't want to leave. They were, they were living in these very tight-knit communities. When you're living in close proximity to these people and you're basically relying on each other for survival, you become very close. And so the book talks about when these Families were forced to leave because they just couldn't keep farming it, or there's some other reasons they were weeping. This place was inhospitable, but it was their home. And so they were so sad to leave that they were taking like handfuls of grass with them from their family's grave sites to take with them back to mainland Scotland or wherever it was that they were going. There was only one school that served this little island, and many of the children, they had to cross a 30-foot-wide channel at low tide to get there. And this caused a lot of issues. Like, a lot of times if the tide fluctuated, then the kids couldn't get to school. Or, you know, if school got out late, then the tide would be high, and the kids would be stuck on one side of the channel or the other. So either they couldn't get to school, or they wouldn't be able to get home. And crossing this channel actually wasn't even the hardest part of the journey. They had to walk three miles one way just to get to the channel before they even got to the school. And this eventually caused a lot of issues. There was a, a little rebellion kind of that happened around the 1930s when this island, they tried to bring this to the, to the attention of the, the politicians and the people that were supposed to be taking care of them. And it was largely disregarded. Some other examples of the hardships that these people had, there was, there was only one midwife for the island. There was no cars. And so at one point um, during the births of one of the islanders 
this nurse, she had to, they had to go get her in the middle of a snowstorm, and she had to be carried on this guy's back for over a mile to save the baby. All the water on the island came from wells. That's kind of a hardship in and of itself, but not even all of the wells were able to be used for drinking. So they had multiple wells, some which were specified for drinking water. Some of them were just bathing wells. So, you know, that complicated living a fair amount as well. There's only one teacher at this one little school that it was a huge pain for everyone to get to. And this teacher, they were crippled because of the result of a, a childhood accident. Apparently, the teacher was not very stern. The kids would kind of do this thing where they would have what they called blowdowns, where the school was kind of falling apart. And so they would strategically place these rocks and pieces of turf in the chimney of the school, which would cause the chimney to fall down and then school would be canceled for the day. Apparently they did this like all the time. A big part of what caused the start of the depopulation of the island was the Scottish Board of Agriculture was kind of emboldened by this new Land Settlement Act. And what they did, they started giving away land to corporations, uh, once to an English gentleman who used the land in Rosse to kind of raise cows that belonged to the islanders. So the islanders were like, look, we use these cows for milk for our children. You just gave it away to this corporate person who like never even comes to the island. Like, wh what are we supposed to do now? And this, this kept going. They kept giving away the land on the island, like not just any land, like the best parts of the land to like, for example, they give a huge portion of it to this sheep herding company and the company puts up this wall and none of the people's farm animals can even eat anymore because they've walled off all the parts of the island where the things that the farm animals eat grows. So now you have these people who have been living there. They're like just barely getting by. Every day is basically like hard labor. There is no rest. This is a year-round endeavor for them. There's always something to be doing. And kind of the last straw was when the government, as part of the highland clearances, they gave the land to this one sheep herder, or the sheep farmer, and he walled off the island. No one could get to any of the crops that they needed, and then he also kind of opened up a hunting lodge, and he wouldn't let any of the people on the island hunt on it, so that takes away a bunch of the food sources for the people on the island, and no one is even using it. But the person is still like, no, you guys aren't allowed to use it either. So eventually, they, the people of the island, they, they make a bunch of petitions to the politicians that are kind of in charge of this area. And a royal commission was eventually set up to look into the grievances of the families by this guy named Sir William Harcourt. And they called it the Rossé Hearings of the Royal Commission of Inquiry into the Conditions of the Crofters and Cotters in the Highlands and the Islands. <laughs> Apparently, they were not ones for succinct titles back in the day. And as part of this commission, what happens is that this, these seven politicians from the aristocracy and the professional class of the day, they kind of set sail on a boat to come check out the situation on Rasse. But you can kind of tell right away that they are, their heart's not, not in this. So they don't even stay overnight on the island. Their boat kind of comes up to the island. They... they dock overnight on the boat, they dine and sleep offshore, and then as the morning sun comes up, they're rowed aboard the following day, and they kind of trudge their way up this craggy beach to, this, to the schoolhouse I was talking about. And apparently the schoolhouse is packed, like all the local people showed up to let the politicians know what was going on. And interestingly enough, one of the central figures of this hearing was Charles McLeod, who was Caleb McLeod's great-grandfather. So this is kind of like the seed and a really interesting thread that ties the historical elements of the story together. Charles MacLeod, he speaks to this assembly kind of as an elected representative of Arnish, which is like the little city on this little island. A city is not even the right word. Community is probably a better word. There was only five families that were left living there at this time. It was about 30 people. So these 30 people, they say, okay, Charles MacLeod, you're going to be kind of our voice. And this is what he says to these politicians in this little schoolhouse on this tiny little island. We are oppressed with cultivating bad land, which yields no crop, which does not return to us the value of our work. There are many reasons for that. The way the island is circumstanced. In days gone by, this island was called the island of the big men, the island of the strong men, 
and it deserved that name. And then he goes on to talk about how the fighting men, they, they defended the island back in the day in these like ancient battles. And then he goes on to tell them about this proprietor who owns all the arable land that these politicians had, had given away. It was ancient land to these people. It had been in their families for, for years. And so now he says, well, our sheep can't graze. No one's allowed to farm it. And all, all the land is used by this wealthy merchant. And not only that, but I could never really pin down why this was allowed. But the wealthy merchant that was using the land, he forbid anyone from marrying on the island. So I don't know, you know, the legal intricacies that allowed him to do that. But apparently one man on the island, he, he married anyway. And this proprietor, whose name was Mr. Rainey, he kicked him out of his father's house. And so the guy who got married, he wants to stay in this little hut, basically. And so this guy, Mr. Rainey, he goes and he tears down this little hut. And then he puts the guy's fire out. So he tears down this little hut the guy had put up because he'd gotten thrown out of his house because he got married. He douses the guy's fire with water. And then after that, basically no one else on the island will help this guy. They say, okay, this, this guy, Mr. Rainey, is not playing around. We saw what happened to this one guy who got married. We, we don't want any part of this. And eventually, kind of, kind of add insult to injury, this proprietor, he builds a hunting lodge. And you would see all these seals and otters and eagles and rabbits, trout, pheasants, deer, all kinds of stuff on the island in the part where no one was allowed to go. Like I said, he had fences kept up that kept people's cattle from getting there to the land to graze. No one was allowed to hunt there, and it was just kind of like a, a big screw you, for lack of a better word, to all the inhabitants of the island. And then these politicians, they asked when they heard all of this, like, wouldn't you guys rather go someplace else? If it's so bad here, we see the land, we see the landscape and how hard you guys have to work every day. Why don't you just go to the mainland or whatever? And the people basically said, no, this is the place of our birth. This is where our families have been for, for years and years and years. And we don't feel like we should have to go anywhere. They said even though they had to work the land and sea in every quarter of the year, they wanted to stay on this island. So the commission kind of wraps up and everyone says, okay, well, we're going to see what we can do about this. And we'll take this all into consideration. And they kind of go back on their boat and nothing happens. The people are just like, you know, well, okay, that was great. Some of the people of this island, they keep warning these politicians, like, look, if you people don't do something, we are going to take the law into our own hands. And eventually that's exactly what happened. Five men who went and they basically occupied some of the corporate-owned lands. They brought their wives, they brought their families, they actually even removed some of the sheep and the animals that were there in order to avoid unnecessary loss to the corporation that owned it. They actually even offered fair rent to the landowner, again, whose name was William Blair, and they were warned multiple times. They said, no, we're not taking this deal. You guys need to get out of here. And the government, they had to make a choice, and you kind of see this happen a lot later on with the story as well. There's really no police force on this island. It's far removed from the real everyday reach of the Scottish government at the time. So they have to decide, like, well, are we going to send a bunch of policemen by boat to this island. And so eventually that's exactly what they did. They sent multiple warnings to the people who were now occupying this corporation's land. And eventually a bunch of policemen land on the island. And they found that these five men that had moved onto this land with their families, they had kind of built these crude little houses. But when the police got there and they were like, okay, open up, where are these guys? We're going to take you away. We're going to find you, whatever. They were told, oh, the men, they've gone into hiding in the caves and the hills of the island. Police were like, okay, great. Well, you know, there's only a couple of us. There's no way we're going to find them in this island. So the police leave. And the men, they, they reach out to the press. They say they don't want to be outlaws. They're not looking for trouble. They just want their own land back. But they don't have any other option. Like, to live. This is the only thing that they can do. There's no, nowhere for them to farm anymore. Their animals can't eat even any of the grass. So this is the only thing that they can do. They can't afford to go to get a boat and uproot their entire family. This is the only recourse that they have. So then a second group of policemen come back after the situation starts getting some attention from the public. And the men, they basically give themselves up. And so their families are allowed to follow them as far as they could, which is kind of one of the bigger islands of the Hebrides. And when the men get there, 
escorted by the policemen, there's this crowd that's waiting there to cheer them. The public is very sympathetic to the plight of these people. The men, they were fined about what equates to $500 today, which is an exorbitant amount because their annual rent was only $5. And so basically the men, they were like, we're never going to be able to pay this. Even if they had the money, it's unlikely that they would have paid it. They consider this like a moral crusade. Eventually, they were basically faced with 42 days of imprisonment if they did not pay this $500 fine. And they didn't pay. And a, a crowd shows up when they're escorted to the jail and they're taken to prison. The crowd is cheering for them. And the government is like, what, what are we going to do about this? These guys are going to serve their sentence. They're going to be released. They're going to go right back to living on this corporation's land. We're, what are we going to do? Just find them again and not pay them again and put them in prison? The government knew they were in a bad spot. And so they tried to kind of find a compromise saying that they would release the men if they promised to abandon their new homes. But again, the men refused. They had nowhere to go. And so all the way home, you had all these crowds that lined the way of these men that were cheering for them when they were first released from the prison. And keep in mind, too, that it's not just one place. Like, there's many islands that this boat is kind of stopping at. So every island that they get to, every tiny little island, there's like a crowd that's cheering for them that they stood up to the man. There's bonfires that are lit on all these islands that are celebrating how these men, you know, many of these other islands, they'd been suffering similar things as this particular one, Rasse, that I'm talking about. So the plight was well known. As these men were making their way back home after they're being released from prison, all these little islands are, are lighting these bonfires. And right when they get back to Rasse, they <laughs> go right back to where they were, just like they said they were going to do. And eventually the government and the company, they said, okay, we have had enough bad press from this. We agree to relocate your families. They paid to relocate the families of these people. And the place that the government relocated these people to was a POW mining camp that was used from World War One. And Kayla McLeod kind of saw all of this. He was very young at the time, but he would have seen the crowds that were cheering for the men as they got back for standing up to the government. He would have seen the bonfires that were celebrating them. And really, most importantly, he would see that the government was not going to help these people. He kind of learned at a very early age that if you wanted to get something done, you were going to have to do it yourself. So I mentioned a POW mining camp. Many of the inhabitants of the island at the outbreak of World War I went to fight in the war. Uh, actually, a disproportionate number of men were sent and died from the island. Caleb McLeod's father, he was a quartermaster in the Navy, and he was actually stopped by a German submarine off the Spanish coast. And the men were made to get off the boat, and then it was sunk by the submarine. And a lot of these men that returned from the war, they were made all these promises by the government. They were said, we're going to give you new land, land fit for heroes. And what happened was they returned to conditions that were even worse than when they left. So these men, they were sent, they fought, they watched their neighbors die, the communities were decimated. And they returned back to even worse squalor and more restricted land than they had when they left. So, like I said, Caleb McLeod, his father, was in the Scottish Navy. And after that, he was working as a, as a merchant seaman in Glasgow. And that's where Caleb McLeod is born. And apparently he was a, a very sickly child. And they eventually moved back to the island of Rasse to get away from the city uh, the smoke and the fumes, the doctor said, was making him very weak. Eventually, once they moved back to the island, uh, Caleb was very young when they did this. Uh, he became very strong, both physically and morally. And so, as a child, Caleb McLeod, he was extremely curious. He sought knowledge voraciously and, again, put yourself in this era. There's no TVs or even phones. Apparently, there was only, like, one phone on the island. It was in, like, a public location. And so... Caleb McLeod, his first language was actually Gaelic, which he learned by ear. He eventually learned English as a, as a second language and became extremely fluent in it. I've got some quotes from Caleb, and he was a, a very good writer, and he actually won many awards for some of his writings. Entertainment at this time, when Caleb McLeod is first born, it's basically just people coming to visit, and they'd have these little Kayleys or dances at the houses in these little communities. 
So as, as Caleb McLeod is, is growing up, he's working with his father. Basically, he, he does a bunch of the stonework on the island. They, they build a bunch of the, the stone dikes, and he was apparently a very rough, strong man, very persistent and adherent to his ideals. He would also do some fishing in the local seas. He would sell lobsters or fish, but apparently oftentimes, by the time the lobsters got to where they were going, they, they all would have died. So basically, instead of getting a bunch of money back, he would just get a note back from the shipping company that said, Lobster's dead. <laughs> Calum had two brothers whose names were Ronald and Charles, and three sisters, uh, one of which died um, when she was very young in, in 1919 from a Spanish flu epidemic. Eventually, he would go on to get married in 1944, and it's not like there was really a, a jeweler or anything on this island, so all they could get was this tiny, tiny, thin band of gold to use for a wedding ring. And again, these islands are, are so desolate, they barely even had ingredients for cakes. Like, all the ingredients were, were rationed. These communities, they were very close-knit. So when they found out that Calum was getting married, they all kind of came together. Like, this family over here, they gave up a little bit of flour. This family down the road, they gave a little bit of sugar. And they were able to make this cake on this island, which was kind of a big deal. Calum was extremely proud of his Gaelic heritage and the island itself and i, I almost I, I had to double check multiple times to make sure i was interpreting this correctly he apparently was served as some kind of like a postman for the island he actually worked on the lighthouse as well he would work like this little boat for the island taking people to and from the lighthouse and when there were funerals there was only one cemetery that could only be reached by boat so he would take people by boat to the cemetery or this other bigger island that kind of had a store on it. A store is maybe a, a generous term to use for what this place was. When he would go to this place, he would go around his community and say, what supplies do you need? What supplies do you need? And everyone would kind of make notes and hand it to him and then give him money. And a lot of times, this even this more well-provisioned location that he would go to didn't have many of the things that people would want. So what they would do, they would write or nearest on their list. So for example, I want apple jelly or nearest. So maybe this place doesn't have apple jelly, but he'll get me grape jelly instead. By all accounts, Calum was an extremely smart man and English was his second language. And he's basically self-taught from the age of 15. He read every book he could get his hands on. And uh, he was a, a, apparently a very prolific writer. In this book, uh, Calum's Road, there's a whole list of awards that he's won. And many of the awards are actually from writings of his that are written in Gaelic about the Gaelic community. And he would often write local newspapers, petitioning local newspapers about political issues and things like that as well. So he had a strong belief in the resilience of Gaelic people and their resourcefulness to kind of move mountains and that the Gaelic language, the whole reason that it had evolved was to describe miracles. And he kind of turned this into truth. And not just with this road, but for example, he grew tobacco on this island, which apparently had never been grown there before. It was known to never grow in that kind of climate. But his father and all his father's friends smoked, so Calum decided to start growing tobacco, even though he himself didn't smoke. He did this with tomatoes as well. He grew tomatoes, even though he didn't eat tomatoes himself. He built a bunch of footpaths through the communities as well to kind of connect them and prevent this exodus of people. And often this was referred to as trying to fight a fire with a bucket and a hand pump. But he wasn't discouraged. He considered this a, a matter of principle for them. He loved this island. He knew the government wasn't, wasn't going to help him out. And he kind of took matters into his own hands. Calum, he was very young when he saw how the government did wrong the people of this island and how they were treated. And so that really kind of stuck with him. And there were many other instances of this kind of thing that happened on this island where they would petition the government for roads or for a, a better school, a school where they didn't have to walk three miles and cross this channel at low tide to get an education. And it was basically just silence from the government. And then in 1945, there were these Highland Clearances. And this is one of those topics where I can just see people getting mad because I don't go into every detail about it, but I'm just kind of going to gloss over it, how it particularly pertains to this issue. The 
government of Scotland raised the age of schooling from 15 to 18. And the last three years, they would have to be done at a specialized secondary school. Calum's daughter was affected by this. She was basically forced to sever all ties with her family, this tiny community that she had never left. And she was forced to put all her stuff in this little box. And she went by boat to this other place called Portree. And it's not like there was a phone that she could call home to anytime she wanted. They had never left. They had never been separated. At, at 16, this young girl, Caleb's daughter, is forced to leave by this government policy and hardly talks to her for a couple years. And what this caused was basically a mass exodus of the youth of the highlands and many of these islands. And so you only had these aging populations that were left. Caleb's daughter, her name was Julia, she was kind of taxied by boat on her way home on a break from school and got stuck in a snowstorm and she kind of like had to take shelter in the lee of this rock. And so these situations like this, they just keep adding to Calum's resentment of the government. Because of these highland clearances, many of these islands and the, the highland communities, they're, they're skeletons. And it actually isolated many of the youth from their homes as well. So these young children... 16 to 18, they, they go off, they live in these more centralized, kind of urbanized locations. And then when they go back home to these little islands and communities, they're like, well, what is this? I've been living in a city for the past two or three years. And they, they come home and they're having to drink out of wells, milk cows and all this stuff. And it sows dissension within the familial units themselves from an emotional standpoint, not just a geographic standpoint. And this is one of the many things that Calum would write to the newspapers about. He was very aggressive in trying to call out these policies and make it known how the government would allow the businesses to come in and take over these lands. He was infuriated. He eventually became so infuriated that he says, I am going to make a stand. I am going to do something. I'm going to do something that is equal parts shaming, physical, and practical. And in 1960, Kayla McLeod decides to build a road. I am not exaggerating when I tell you that this is an absolutely ridiculous idea. This island is not filled with cars. People don't use automobile transportation. It barely even exists at the time. But if you look at it, it's a little bit more practical than it seems in terms of the use of the road. So his goal is to kind of connect some of these communities on the island to the main center of the island. He's also trying to make it easier for his daughter to come home and visit, even though this span of the journey would have been almost insignificant when compared to the rest of the journey that she would have to go to. But he's looking at the kids. They're all having to do this walk to school. All the families, these ancient families that have been here for, for centuries, they're being forced to leave. His daughter is taken from him. He's fishing, and people are just sending him these notes back that said, oh, sorry, your fish are all dead. We're not going to pay you. So I say practical in terms of use for a specific reason, because if you go back to my description of the island, it's not like this is just dirt soil. It is rock and shale and mountains and rolling hills that this guy is saying that he's going to build this road on. And Caleb doesn't even, he's never built a road before. He has no experience with road building. He has no idea. The time period is a little up for debate, but at some point in 1954 and 1962 is when Caleb says he's going to do this. <laughs> like I said, he has no experience on road making. And so he buys this book called Roadmaking and Maintenance, a Practical Treatise for Engineers, Surveyors, and Others, which was published in 1900 by a man named Thomas Aitken. And basically every chapter of the book covers a different section of roadmaking, which was perfect because Calum had no idea about any aspects of roadmaking, and he was going to do all of it by himself from start to finish. And keep in mind, Calum didn't just do this without telling anybody. He told the government that this island needed a road, which was true. But again, it was just silence. So he said, okay, you're not going to do it. You're sure you're not going to do it. Okay, I'm going to do it. So he buys this book. It cost him like three pounds or something like that. And he buys a wheelbarrow and a shovel. 
and a spade. And one day he packs his lunch, he goes out and he starts work on this road. He works a long day and he comes back home. And by the end of the day, he had progressed several yards, which was only one one thousandth of the job that he would need to do to complete the road. And this is where the story gets absolutely ridiculous. Everything has just kind of been setting the scene up until this part, the actual building of this road. So Caleb is no spring chicken. He's about like 50 years or something like that, 50 years old, when he starts building this road. Like I said, the, the time frame that he actually started is a little up for debate. Every day, basically, Caleb is working on this road. And this is in between the hard labor of milking cows and delivering mail and working on the lighthouse and upkeeping his croft and doing fishing year-round, <laughs> day after day. He was tireless. And so as he's building this road, more and more people are leaving this community. And they're pleading with the government the whole time to build footbridges to connect the communities and to bring in electricity, build them a better school, to hire more than one teacher, to build them a bridge over this little river that they have to cross every day. So every now and then, actually very, very rarely, the government, they might send like an engineer or two to do some, some demolitions for the road. This happened a couple times. And what would happen was they would come and they would blow up some rocks or a, a section that Calum asked them to blow up and they would say, oh, that'll, that'll keep them busy for another year or two. And they'd come back in like a month and he'd be done. He would have gone through all the rock. He'd be past that part where they had been just like a month before. And they were like, what is going on with this guy? Calum worked on this road year round. He worked through the wettest month in 50 years on this island. It was gale force winds with no shelter that would rip his clothes. There were times where he could barely even stand that the wind was so bad. So just envision this guy. He's 50 years old. He's been living this hard life, this rugged island life. There's no shelter around him. Just digging a road with a shovel in the pouring rain to the point where the winds are just blowing him everywhere. He did this constantly. The weather would be so bad, you know, he'd have to put on all these layers of clothes to, to stay warm, but there were times where the wind was so bad and the rain, it would come sideways and it would just get into his clothes no matter how he put them on. So he'd be soaking wet. One part I read, it said, the weather would never defeat him. The weather would change and come and go, but Calum would not. He's moving these massive rocks that are in the way. And he's doing this all by hand with just a couple tools that he can fit in a wheelbarrow. One of the rocks he moved was nine tons. And basically what he would do, he'd, he had this little jack and he would jack this rock up and then he'd fill the space where he had jacked the rock up with little tiny rocks. And then he'd kind of reset the jack and then he'd do it again and again over and over until the rock eventually fell off into the sea or was out of the way. Caleb was doing this, he's going through all these tools too. This is hard work. Moving these rocks, he's picking them up with his hands or a shovel or he's going through them. He went through three wheelbarrows, six picks, six shovels, five sledgehammers, four spades, one crowbar. You know, these tools aren't easy to come by either. Many times he's having to repair the tools with materials that he has at his croft or, or send out by boat for another one or go by boat to get a new one. It's not like they just had wheelbarrows laying around this island that he could go and get a new one. He's doing all of this on top of all the, the farm work, the feeding the animals and milking the cows. He actually never even had a clock. He would just use a sundial to keep time. He tried to use a couple pocket watches, but they just broke so frequently because of the nature of the work that he was doing. And his daughter, actually, who witnessed him using this method of timekeeping, said he was able to use the sundial within a 30-minute margin of error, which is amazing. It was basically, it wasn't even like a sundial. It was a, a stick that he would put in the ground, and then he would use the sun in the shadow of the stick, and he would know, okay, I've got to go milk the cows now. Caleb was actually interviewed once when the road was complete, and he said, I always liked freedom. It's a fine, healthy life on the hills here. I have never been an hour off duty by illness or ever in the hands of a doctor or dentist or nurse or anybody in my life. So like I said, Caleb is no spring chicken. He's like 40 or 50 and he's working on this road for 10 to 20 years, depending on where you pinpoint the exact time that he started. And it is grueling work. He is doing it 
through every season on top of all this farm work. And it's not just a road that he's making. There's a lot more that goes into making a road than just paving a path. He is laying down boulders at the parts of the road that border the ocean so that if a car is to ever drive along that part of the road, it's like a guardrail. The car doesn't go off course and go into the ocean. He's also digging culverts for water to flow under the road. Then he's building walls for the culverts. Then he's building the road on top of the culvert, and he's burying the most labor-intensive part of the road that he's made, which is the culvert. There's a really interesting point as he's building this road, which ended up being about two miles, just under two miles. It's a mile and three quarters. And he gets to the wall where this corporate sheep farmer had been, where his great-grandfather had met with the politicians and during that hearing in the school building. And at one point, he has to tear this wall down. And you kind of imagine, I think a lot of people, a cheer would go up in their hearts when they did this. You know, they're making this road of their own will when the government's not going to help them. And here's this kind of symbol of why this person is even building this road in the first place. And I imagine the cheer goes up in their hearts. But I don't know if Caleb was that kind of person. I kind of just see him as a matter of fact, here's this wall, I'm making this road and I'm going to take it down. But there was definitely some really incredible symbolism at that point. This road, it took Calum 10 to 20 years of doing this work from sunup to sundown in all weather. <laughs> and I don't, I don't even have a metaphor for how difficult or crazy this undertaking was. It's almost like if you, whoever you are listening to this, decided one day that you are going to build a road having no experience using nothing but hand tools by yourself. That's the only metaphor I can think of, is the actual thing that he did. One of the more brutal parts of the story is that by the time Calum finished this road, him and his wife were the only ones left on the island. But that kind of didn't really deter him. He just, he was a, a man of principle, and he wanted to do this thing to show the government the strength of the islanders and the ancient Gaelic people and the principles and make them feel bad for not fulfilling their role in taking care of these people. Eventually, Caleb McLeod, he finishes his road, but it's not complete because it needs tarmac, which needs some more industrial tools, which basically only the, the road building section of the government of Scotland has at this time. And so once again, Caleb McLeod is petitioning the government he says, look, I, I built this road by hand. You know, this got a lot of attention, too. It wasn't just like this guy. It wasn't like he was just doing this by himself. Like, people were taking note of this. And so he says, okay, now can you just do this one last little part? And of course, it just goes on and on and on again with the government. They come up with a million reasons why they can't do it. It gets bounced around from the European Economic Community, to the Inverness County Council, to, oh, now we've crossed fiscal years, we've got to resubmit the bid, and then the Inverness County Council is, like, disbanded, and it becomes, like, the Scottish Agriculture Council or whatever, and these groups that are responsible for the islands, they keep changing hands, and it's just one thing after another. To kind of be fair, some of the estimates for finishing the road were up to... 220,000 pounds is what it would cost them. And there's only two people living on this island. So from a purely fiduciary standpoint, how do you justify that? Caleb, he says, he makes a point. He says, like, look, I've been paying road taxes for years, ever since I've, I've lived here. I've never even driven on a road before. You guys kind of owe this to us as well. So there's definitely two sides of it. But again, you just, this guy, when it comes to the government, just over and over again, they're just screwing him over. So Caleb had actually bought a car a couple years before he had finished making his road. And that's interesting to me because he kind of considered it a foregone conclusion that he was going to complete it. It was never even in question. And a car at this time for Caleb McLeod was a pretty hefty investment. And one of the craziest parts of this story is that Caleb McLeod buys this car years before this road is done. He completes the road, and then his family, they're all, they're all gather around to watch him drive on the road. And he starts at his house, and he drives on the road that he made to the very end of the road, where it connects with the road that the Scottish government had built years ago, like the one other road on the island. 
and he stops. And the reason that Kayla McLeod, isolated from basically the rest of the world on this little island, does not go on the publicly owned road on this tiny little island because he does not have his driver's license. Just like he grew tomatoes because other people ate them even though he didn't. Just like he grew tobacco because other people smoked it even though he didn't. Kayla McLeod built a road for other people to drive on even though he didn't. By all accounts, the road was exceptionally well built. Even the engineers and surveyors that came to see how much it would cost to put the tarmac on top of the road, they actually, a term was coined based off of his creation, which is now known as land art. Caitlin McLeod's contribution was eventually acknowledged by the government. He was given a British Empire medal, but interestingly enough, the citation for the medal said that it was for maintaining supplies to the Rona Lighthouse. But everyone kind of knew that it was because he had built the road that he had received it. Like, the, the government couldn't formally acknowledge that it was for building the road. So it was kind of like a wink and a nod, but everyone knew that this was like basically about as close as an apology as the government could offer to Calum and really the people of these little island communities. And there was a big celebration when this happened, especially for this little island with only a couple people living there by this point. His wife said that they served 17 people in their little croft and that was the most people that they'd ever had there. She talks about how the feast started with one chicken and the chicken went so quickly that they then had to open the beans and they had to then go get the corn and one thing after another. It's really interesting hearing her take on it. There's a bunch of politicians and people that came to be a part of the event, and I think he even had like a letter from the Queen that said, sorry, I can't be there, or something like that. Today, the road serves as a, a tourist attraction of sorts. It does get used more than it would have been when Calum had initially completed it, and uh, it's actually been submitted to be commemorated as a World Heritage Site. So, with that being said, I am going to play you Calum's Road. There you go. Calum's Road. I should definitely mention that this is a contemporary piece that's typically played as a Strathspey, and it's a little bit more contemporary. It was written by a band uh, that I hope I'm going to pronounce right. It's called Caper Cayley. So they're a Scottish folk band that was kind of formed in the 1980s, uh, varying 
lineups, but definitely check them out if you're you're into that tune for some more stuff like them. They do some interesting contemporary type of stuff by adopting modern production techniques and instruments. They use electric guitar and, and bass, stuff like that. So if you're into kind of Gaelic, folk, contemporary hybrids, give them a listen. So whatever happened to Kalen McLeod? Well, one day after his lunch in January 1988, he walked outside to continue working. It never ended for Kalen. He didn't return for his mid-afternoon cuppa. His wife walked outside and found Kalem dead in his wheelbarrow, his white collie, Cole, standing guard. It was assumed to be a heart attack, but we'll never know because, like I said, this was a small island and the coroner wasn't available to do an autopsy. Some of you devout historians out there might think otherwise, but I definitely do a lot of research and reading when it comes to doing these podcasts, and I get really attached to the characters. You spend a lot of time with these historical figures, and you kind of get to know them on a strange level. And, of course, they almost always end tragically or with the death of the main person, and this one is no different. But this one resonated with me different because I wasn't sad at the end of it. Actually, my favorite part is the very end. Because Caleb McLeod did not have to be carried by boat to his final resting place, as his ancestors had been for centuries before. He was driven by car over a road he built himself. So what's your goal for the new year? Is it to drop a couple pounds? Is it to read more? Is it to play more music? Is it to give my podcast a five-star review? Whatever it is, I believe that you can do it. So happy new year, everybody. I'm cheering for you. No matter what life brings your way in the coming year, be bold, be kind, and safe travels wherever your wandering takes you. I have grown to the top of a mountain. My breath is wide and free and when I fall I'll take what is given and if I get nervous